From True Spectrum Media, this is the Genetics of Hope podcast, a candid conversation series with the doctors, patients, researchers, families, and activists who make up this rare disease and biotech community of goodness. This is a breakthrough. To see someone who I'd watched deteriorate, and then to see that start to be reversed. On today's show, Dr. Catherine Swoboda, a neurologist at Massachusetts General Hospital, is in conversation with co-host Ard Mischakowski, her patient of over 20 years. You know, all my life I thought I was going to die of the disease and I set my affairs up and organized my work and my family so I could do that. Now I'm going to live maybe a lot longer. Just for some context, the following conversation followed a screening of the Genetics of Hope film, now available on Amazon Prime. Today's show focuses on spinal muscular atrophy, a rare neuromuscular disease. Speaking with Dr. Catherine Sabota and special guest Mary Walensky, we track a 20-year journey in SMA research leading to three breakthrough treatments. We talk about the cost of treatment and what is the cost of a human life. What impact can newborn screening have on treatment outcomes? And how does research from one disease impact another? This is the Genetics of Hope. You know, I I noticed the thing the first time I watched the film at the end where it was saying that these treatments are being used for other diseases, including cancer and COVID-19. How are they using it with COVID? So um, the technology to alter RNA biology, Mm -hmm. uh, the antisense oligotherapies have had an amazing um, expansion of of uses across the spectrum of, of medicine. I mean, as a rare disease specialist, I'm most familiar with the other rare diseases that they're using it for. Uh, like, for instance, for Huntington's disease, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is a horrible, dege- you know, neurodegenerative condition that's associated with progressive psychiatric disease and movement disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're they're using the same technology with injections into the spinal fluid and trying to treat family members decades before they would start to develop their symptoms now. And so that is that's again so transfer. If you can imagine. You know, being in a family uh, with a a legacy of Huntington's disease, you know, unlike uh, SMA, which is a recessive disorder and the parents don't have it. You've watched a parent uh, have progressive disease and, and, and and a grandparent, perhaps. And then, you know, that you share that genetic legacy. Mm -hmm. Uh, To be able to have a therapy to start to treat that ahead of time, Mm -hmm. that's what I'm aiming for when I get my neurologic disease. That's what I want. There you go. (laughs) So, uh, Cray, I, you know, when I was watching that scene with the uh, the injection, uh, did you faint when you filmed that? (laughs) I was nervous going into it. Like, I'm not good with blood overall, but it was not bloody. And the needle does go a couple inches into the back, though. Artemis was not really awake for the first time. And then he had to watch back the video, which was, I don't even know if you wanted to see that because we had this close up <laughs> right there on the needle and you'd, you'd probably just rather be, you know, like, 
Okay. Under, under. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. No, I mean, I think it's good to see that, you know, some of the tools that we use still in medicine are relatively crude. I mean, we do spinal taps the same way that we did it when they were originally developed, truly. The only thing that's a little better is that the needles uh, can be a little bit smaller and a little bit less sharp. So maybe there's some technology advances, but, you know, it's it's, um, the same technology that we've had for since the beginning. One of the other um, amazing things about um, the scientists and and, um, all of the researchers and clinicians who've worked on SMA is that they envisioned from the very beginning that one approach was not going to be enough. Mm -hmm. And from the beginning, we said, we know that at at the end of the day, not everybody's going to be able to get spinal injections very Mm -hmm. easily. Um, we need other therapies. So Artemis has just started the new oral therapy, which does something very similar to uh, to the same thing he was getting injected into his uh, spinal fluid. It's now available via a once-a-day medication. This is the, the thing. I used to go into the hospital and they injected a needle that long into my spine. Now, every morning, I just take this little lovely cough medicine type thing and, and just put it in my mouth and go. And, and that's so, it. That's it. Finito. Catherine, how is this similar or different from Spinraza? And what is it doing in my body? I actually wanted to ask you this question, so might as well just have a public forum. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, why not? So we didn't go in the film into great um, depth about exactly what it's doing. Mm-hmm. But you heard... Um, Dr. Craner talking about, you know, the books in the library. Well, those books uh, give you the recipe for the protein, but then you have to make RNA. And then out of the RNA, which is being made all the time in your body, you're making new proteins all the time. Mm-hmm. So both Spinraza uh, is um, injected into the spinal fluid and it interacts with the RNA for the SMN2 gene and it prevents it from, from taking out making a little cut that takes out that critical exon seven or page or chapter seven that Dr. Craner was talking about. It makes mm-hmm. it stay in there. The, the protein is able to be made in its full length, perfect form. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eversty does something very similar at that same place, but via a small molecule that take, goes in, you know, um, to the gut, is absorbed across into your bloodstream and then gets throughout your body that way. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the difference um, in technology, it, you know, the difference between um, that technology and the having to inject it into the spinal fluid, um, you know, that's a tremendous improvement if in fact it works as well or better than Spinraza. In, in mm-hmm. fact, we don't know yet how exactly they compare to each other. We think that they uh, work in an almost identical fashion, mm. but yet we don't really understand that until we get more more experience. So that, that's, that's the important there. And then of course we have gene therapy. How is that measured? How can you tell if it's working? So um, obviously you saw all of the tests that Artemis was doing were looking mm-hmm. at motor function. Yeah. Uh, every time the patients come to see us, but we're also exploring markers in the blood that tell us about the health of the muscles, about the health of the nerves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're asking patients about um, their fatigue, 
um, one of the most disabling parts of this disease, which you'd never know from watching, following around Artemis because he has endless energy. But the biggest complaint that adults with SMA have is fatigue. And they can't uh, do things for a very long time before their muscles stop working. You know, Rennie Descartes, uh, I think, therefore I am, wasn't just talking about thinking. He was talking about that we are the masters of our destiny. We are the creators of our reality. And biologically, if someone gets sick because their muscles are weak, it means to many people, you're not working hard enough. You're not exercising hard enough. You're actually lazy. You're actually sitting around complaining all day, but you don't do anything. I exercise my muscles, but my muscles are dying because the nerve is not working. Not because the muscles, not because my will is not there. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, almost if you look at Kant, if you look at the whole Western tradition, we are wrong about the body. We have to go back to da Vinci. We have to go back actually to the pre-Socratic and understand that every time we do something, even if we've done it before, it's the first time we've ever done it because reality is not about a fixed moment. It's about the experience of it. So every time we go into a river, it's not the same river because we're different Mm -hmm. and we see the river differently. And our biology is the same thing. I would argue, Kathy, that I have bigger muscles in some domains than Arnold Schwarzenegger (laughs) because I have adapted my body to still walk. I have no muscles. It's like a butterfly. I have no muscles to walk, but I still do because Mm -hmm. there's a will of my spirit. And I think that's what's so important about this breakthrough for me is that I believe in the placebo of it. I believe in even the possibility that it doesn't work. I take this and I feel better. So two things come up with that Artemis that that you brought to mind is um, many neurological diseases and particularly degenerative neurological diseases um, are profoundly influenced by exactly what you're talking about. Um, People's will to keep going. Uh, Because we know that exercise does matter tremendously. It matters when you're healthy, but it matters a whole lot more when you have a neurodegenerative disease. And it matters a whole lot more as you get older to maintain your function. Mm -hmm. Um, So so you're absolutely right. Um, I I wanted Cray, I mean, this is a good jumping point uh, to say Cray, I think, was very creative. You guys really went through a lot of thought about coming up with the title to the film. And I was very skeptical at first. I was like, genetics hope. But I would say that one thing I've learned from Artemis more than anything else is um, that hope, that constant optimism is a choice that he wakes up with every day. Um, it's, It's something that he, that helps him more than any medicine I will ever give him. And it's a really important thing for all of us to 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 have in our lives, no matter what we're facing. Uh, and I, I just have to say that that's uh, that's one of the things that I that Artemis has given me that gift of understanding that that uh, approach to life. Hi, I've got a question for you. OK, how did filming this affect you? It made me so amazed that my body mostly works pretty well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because like learning about what's wrong, like the error in Artemis's DNA and this one protein 
that is missing. And because of that, the muscles aren't receiving the message that his brain might be sending. And then to think of the thousands of proteins and the, and the thousands of DNA that are, that are coding the proteins, it's just a miracle that we work this well. And in a way, like the hope is survival, right? Like the will to keep going, as Artemis is saying, and, and the, the will to believe that even before there was a cure, which, or, you know, a treatment, not a, not a complete cure, that the patient community and the Cure SMA conference that we saw still had that same will and belief, even if it was into the darkness that made this, that this treatment was developed so quickly. And it was the first RNA treatment of its kind to work in, in this way. So it was going into the unknown. And, you know, we, we've, we've talked about this before, Dr. Svoboda, but what was the the hope or the will for you to keep going because you also kept going, you know, in a different way than Artemis and the patients, but along a similar path. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I first um, met um, SMA patients in the clinic at Boston Children's actually, because that's where I did my training um, uh, in the, in the Harvard Longwood area. And um, we used to, um, you know, just tell these these poor families that there was really nothing we could offer that we didn't that we, we just had to give them the best possible life. And it's really I learned from the families even back then that celebrating life daily has meaning for these families mm-hmm. and that even if they die tomorrow, celebrating life every day matters Mm-hmm. Uh, because you you don't know if you're going to be there tomorrow. Right. None of us do. And and uh, the way that I have survived my career, which which honestly would be otherwise horribly depressing, is I choose to be optimistic always in in my message to to my patients as much as I possibly can. And on the rare occasions when I'm down and haven't been able to convey that optimism, you can see that the, the life being sucked out of people yeah you know it's just getting news that your child or you as an individual have a a life-threatening or or degenerative disease you know that's going to take away I don't care take away your walking your talking or your your ability to think or speak or any of those things is devastating and I think um you know uh you just have to take it one day at a time and Artemis just does that beautifully uh, we have a question from one of the, uh, the people watching today. She says, um, where do you go from here? You know, what are the next steps in the research and, and what needs to happen? So right now, um, we are really excited. Um, we have three therapies for SMA. Hmm. Uh, and um, they are all quite good, but they can be further improved. Mm-hmm. And right now, we would love for people not to have to take a medicine every day. We would love to not have to inject a medicine every Mm -hmm. few months. We would not like to not have to give them um, a therapy more than one time. And that's where gene editing technologies are are coming to the fore. Wow. And I, I think that, you know, really in the next five years, we have gene therapy right now for SMA, but it's, it's what I call, you know, it's, it's, 
it's level one. It's it's entry level, you know, uh, gene therapy 101. We're going to go through different iterations and get progressive improvements mm-hmm. so that um, we're going to be able to tackle not only SMA, but other um, genetic disorders. Because the, the truth is um, that uh, one thing that people don't appreciate, DNA is not static. RNA is not static. So there's changes happening to our DNA and our body through our lifetimes all the time. We're having mutations occur that have to be repaired. Uh Uh, We're making RNA all the time that something could interfere with that. Uh, Uh We're turning over proteins all the time. And, And going back to what Artemis said about aging, we get less effective as as our DNA gets older, as our cells age, as the machinery does not work quite as well, mm-hmm. I think this provides hope for all of us um, to to have a better quality of life by applying these techniques to other diseases, not just mm-hmm. SMA, but to diseases of aging and other disorders. Our DNA is not a passive thing. Our DNA is being expressed every moment we are alive. Right, Catherine? That's true. Mm-hmm. And so for SMA, it means keep going. So just to keep in mind for the audience, <laughs> they, uh, they manufacture this in 80 mil bottles. And um, the cost for the maximum adult dose for Artemis to get for a year is three hundred and thirty thousand dollars so these medications do not come cheap the gene therapy which is a one-time injection in children is two over two million wow and the spinraza is eight hundred seventy-five thousand or so the first year and then um you know subsequent years mm. uh there's three doses a year uh at a cost of about seven hundred fifty thousand. this technology is not expensive as we improve other treatments and expand this technology, um, they can't do this for every, that's not going to be the, the future, but the original development of the strategies costs money and decades of science. Any breakthrough in one area leads to a breakthrough in others, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you have to look at these children that are being affected and think, yeah, I'd, I'd spend the money on that. Well, I mean, again, I think um, uh, that's the whole principle of newborn screening, which mm-hmm. people don't think a lot about. I started to to try to promote newborn screening for SMA starting back in 2006. Yeah. It took us until 2018 to get SMA recommended to be added to the panel for newborn screening wow. after we had these new therapies come available. Are they working on genetic screening before you know, for parent, for, for prospective parents to see if they carry the recessive gene? Certainly we do. Um, we do screening um, in uh, mothers uh, when they're mm-hmm. pregnant for carrier status for mm-hmm. certain disorders that we know uh, treatment is required early. So for instance, for cystic fibrosis, sure, that's routinely been done in prenatal testing for a long time. Recently, SMA was added. That is really critical. Uh, how many other disorders could we screen for? But it, it, it's not ideal during pregnancy because that's a time when you induce a lot of anxiety. It's not oh, yeah. a time when you really want to find out your carrier for a bunch of new things. They were at um, uh, a school in Chicago studying uh, a young couple uh, in the U.S. doing uh, studies. 
and um, they got pregnant. They had Amalia and Amalia started to show symptoms before a year of age, but it wasn't till over two when, when uh, she got back to Chile that she, they finally got a diagnosis. And at that point they found out they were pregnant with Augustine and Augustine, uh, they contacted me and I had the opportunity to have them come to Boston because we had the opportunity to give him um, free treatment via a, a research protocol at that time mm -hmm. as a newborn. So that's how he got treated early. He's still completely normal. That's so critical, but it, it, it points out two problems. One, we missed the opportunity to identify her as a carrier with her first child. Mm -hmm. um, we, number two, we then missed the opportunity to make a quick diagnosis because the doctors seeing her did not have um, a quick and easy test to do right away. Right. Um, and, and, and then number three, we almost missed the opportunity to, um, uh, it, the timing was just perfect because uh, the drug was just available at the time that Augustine was, was needing it. So I, I think the timing worked out perfectly for that family, but so many other families around the world still can't get access to this therapy. We, we can get access to these therapies for almost every child in the U.S., regardless of their insurance coverage because of programs that are out there with the pharmaceutical companies right now. That's better than care than people can get for COVID right now. I think that's there's a lot of parts of our healthcare system that in a way um, are better suited to treat rare diseases than yeah. they are common frequent diseases with expensive therapies for sure. So everything she just said, I have lived through and Cray has documented with Gareth Burgess. I want to mention Gareth Burgess um, because without him, we wouldn't even have a film. But the real thing is Gareth Burgess's dad is at, at Ohio State University, as you saw, and developed with Catherine and many other scientists the, the first protocols for understanding what the gene looked like in a mouse model. Mm. And, and that seems torturous to think about poor mice being given SMA. But Catherine, <laughs> explain that process a little bit. Why, why Arthur Burgess should win the Nobel Prize for science? I have really enjoyed uh, so much as a doctor watching the scientists inspire me along the way from the very beginning. And Arthur um, is an, such an inquisitive individual and um, was so sharp in his approach to how to model SMA. He had such an impact beyond what simply his lab did. Mm -hmm. um, he, he asked so many critical questions about the mouse model and did so many of the critical experiments that, that led to the approval of these drugs. Uh, a lot of times scientists get the Nobel Prize, you know, the recent uh, prize for CRISPR for a single discovery. Mm -hmm. I think so many of the doctors and, and uh, scientists, basic scientists working in rare disease, we work as teams with, um, and we get ideas constantly from talking to each other and engaging each other. And I can't tell you how much going to those meetings every year and talking to Arthur and the other scientists gave me ideas to take back to the clinic and start to say, okay, I need to study this. I need to think about this. Mm -hmm. 
that there's a heart issue in the mouse. How does that pertain to the humans? Yeah. Uh, we're seeing that that this uh, there's a muscle problem in the mouse. What does that mean for our human patients? Mm-hmm. And and that unfortunately is the kind of thing that is never recognized. Um, the, the body of work um, of a scientist is recognized via um, various life achievement awards, which are quite rare. We did uh, see um, the the uh, researcher that developed the the technology for Spinraza, Frank Bennett. He did get a lifetime achievement award, which is and Adrian Crater as well. They got a, a really prestigious um, awards uh, honoring their work. Uh, to me, I think Arthur Burgess should be in that mix because yeah. the science that he contributed uh, along the way for so many years, and, and, and there's other scientists as well um, in, in, in that community uh, who really should get credit for the work that mm-hmm. was done because it wouldn't have been able to be possible uh, to do these therapies and develop these therapies without their engagement at every level. Mm-hmm. I would like Cray to tell the story of meeting Gareth Burgess and why this film happened at a biotechnology conference in Cambridge. There was no places to even eat that day. We were starving. Uh, Cray, tell the story of why we met our, uh, Arthur Burgess's son and why he was making this film to begin with. There's a divide between the scientific world and public opinion or public knowledge even of what the breakthroughs are. Like how much of the science comes out of a scientific journal and gets communicated in a digestible way. And that's what Gareth was doing was his first job out of college was in his dad's lab as a lab assistant, essentially. And once he was in there and started to understand what his dad was actually doing, it is at that intense high level of science and you know at the precipice of what this breakthrough that ended up happening and so he was filming with several of the characters in the film as a way to basically on a simple level just be able to communicate this is what my dad does you know something that is complicated that we couldn't fit into this 30 minutes which is why it's so you know helpful to go deeper with Dr. Sabota with our other characters to understand how the DNA is working, but also to learn it through the stories of these characters in a relatable way that it's these families and it's people just like you and me and they're facing the same things that that we are. More testing, more understanding of a patient's DNA and their personal health, and then more treatment options to actually give a solution that will is made for them and will work the best for them because Artemis is different than Miles is different from any of these SMA patients. Yeah. And we have all these newborns now that we're treating and watching as they get older and um, not everybody does respond in the same way, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I think um, we're, we're, we have a lot to learn about the gene therapy. That's yeah. a whole new story um, because that's just new biology that, that we're trying to understand. So it's a very exciting time to be um, a clinician and a scientist and to be able to share these, you know, these, this optimism with patients and families. It's all, it's also a very hard time because so many families with other rare disorders see these kind of successes and think, Oh gosh, this should be possible to do next week for my child. And unfortunately um, 
you know, this really took a decade and a half to unfold. I mean, right. it took a, this was a journey. And yes, it'll be shorter to, to recapitulate it for some of these other things. But mm-hmm. um, but it's not easy. It's definitely no. not easy. We don't actually understand how our brains help to heal whatever deficiency we have, whether it's a chromosome deficiency or a protein. And every one of us gets 23 chromosomes from mom and dad. And then the mixture of that cocktail is unique. That's why my face, even though my mother made me and my father made me, is look different than my brother's face. My eyes are different. Everything's different. I believe that one day we will have a cocktail of approaches to any DNA genetic deficiency and we could cure not just our SMA, but if we want green hair versus purple hair. And I think we're getting to a point with DNA and science where there are gonna be some very big ethical issues. Why am I being kept alive versus Miles? Well, Miles is more important because I'm already 59 years old and he's eight years old. In the beginning, all the spinraza went toward children and babies to keep them alive. And that's the right ethical choice. So Catherine, I'd love for you to talk about that. But in the context of one thing, the genetics of hope, why would our genetics have hope in it? And why would hope be part of our genetics? And how does that relate to the cost of medicine and what we're doing, not just for SMA, but for all neurological diseases? The genetics of hope, in my mind now, um, as I've thought about this, uh, it didn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense to me as a phrase still, except the way I envision it, genetics of hope is um, all of the all of the things that hope and optimism, what is our body doing when we, when our brain is optimistic and hopeful, or we um, are anticipating uh, a positive outcome, what genes are being expressed? What proteins are being made? Uh, how is that impacting our body? It's very clear that when we're under chronic stress, we're producing cortisol and all these toxic uh, catecholamines, and that's gonna cause damage to our body. What are the other positive, what are the genetics of hope? What are, what are the genes that, that are, are creating this you know, positive mixture of hormones, what, whatever it is to, to make us healthy and keep us alive? I love that last point that Dr. Swoboda brought up. What are our genes that code for hope? And how did humans evolve so that hope became a key part of our survival? You've been listening to the Genetics of Hope podcast. Today's show was with neurologist Dr. Catherine Soboda from Massachusetts General Hospital and co-host Artemis Joukowsky with special guest Mary Walensky. For more information, visit geneticsofhope.com to join the conversation and access the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Genetics of Hope. Head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to subscribe and leave a review. It helps us a lot and we appreciate it. The Genetics of Hope podcast is a production of True Spectrum Media. It is produced by Kranovic and Artemis Joukowsky. Thanks for listening and stay hopeful.
that's so fascinating to think about. That's an interesting idea. What, yeah, what those genetics are because it it's part of the brain. It's part of mm-hmm. how humans survive. Like maybe not every organism feels hope. It takes a certain conception of ourselves and our destiny and the the future and the past that we're going to try to survive and that there's somewhere to go. But it but it's part of I don't know. Maybe that's uh, the next episode. Exactly. <laughs> Trying to find. <laughs> I'd like to think we're pretty w- wired to be helpful. The sequel, and 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 actually, <laughs> Cray and I realized as filmmakers that we'd rather do a deep dive on the subject we care about for 25 years than mm-hmm. 50 films that are superficial. Sure. So we are committed to the Genetics of Hope series. This is series one. And, and as stories evolve, and as Crane are engaged as filmmakers, we'll jump in. There's a story about ALS. They have a breakthrough that's unbelievable uh, for Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, which was, you know, the worst of all diseases when I was a kid. Uh, my doctor said, you don't have Duchenne's, thank God. You have juvenile ALS. Yep. And then it was called Kugelberg Wallander. And then it was called SMA. I mean, that happened in what, 2000, SMA? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, so even the names change because the actual work is changing on the theoretical part. The genetics of hope for me is I believe our genetics are hopeful because we're alive. I think life, like Lahayim, life makes life. And the genetics of hope is very simple about why we still are alive. When we die, we can say, yeah, the genetics lasted that long. Sorry. Well, there's no no question that we are programmed for a certain lifespan. I know people want to extend that. Um, And right now, the the future of of improving medical outcomes has to do with optimizing everything we can to take advantage of the full extension of that lifespan. Because we know there are things, uh, negative impacts that cut life short. Uh, but I think that um, ultimately, of course, there's there's going to be someone who really wants to live to be 150. I don't want to live to be 150 ever. But I think there are, you know, the, the truth about human beings is there's always the next moon to get to, right? Mm-hmm. There's always that next frontier that people want to to get to. And, and it is pretty exciting to be part of uh, the, just any part of the amazing discoveries that are happening with medicine and, and um, improvements in, in quality of life, that sort of thing. And, you know, we are, we are getting near the end, but, you know, this is our first series. We didn't plan this, but just to go kind of live, Artemis, I think we should almost ask every guest like an ending question. All right, this is it. What is the genetics of hope in your DNA? <laughs> Ooh. Why are you alive still? If, if you're 90 or 20, talk about your own placebo. <laughs> you 
Kathy, I think I think she, we're all kind of trying to decide how we'd like to answer something well, like just, that. Kathy, in her anxiety to do so much, just had a heart attack. And what did you learn from that, Kathy? As an SMA con contact, like, but like, so what did you learn about behavior? I, about yeah. So I uh, had uh, was under a tremendous amount of stress as a physician going through the surge in Boston with COVID. Mm. And I, um, I am the supreme workaholic. Uh, and I always want to take care of my patients and do my science and take care of my lab. And I think that one very important lesson I learned is that if I want to be here, and, and do the things that I want to accomplish in life. Um, I, I can't do everything. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have to prioritize um, in a really important way and really cherish, again, it, it gets back to um, uh, not being negative. I mean, it, it's very easy with COVID and our current political atmosphere uh, to get into a very negative frame of mind. And um, and and uh, I think the families and patients were there, too, thinking, oh, my God, am I, is my family member going to be denied a ventilator? So mm -hmm. I, I was um, uh, having my own anxieties and, and working extra hard. But then I was absorbing the anxieties of hundreds of my patients. Ooh. And I think that that's something that's how our community matters. We do. Uh, we are affected in sort of undescribable ways by those that surround us and those that we interact with. And so being positive and making that choice every day is something I'm trying to do in a much more prescribed manner. And if there's uh, something that's causing, you know, anger or pain in my life uh, and I can um, address that I think that's important to do I, you know I, I think that that those are the, some of the lessons I've learned through this whole um, through my health issue mm -hmm. I have one more question for Dr. Sabota. give us an update uh, about Miles about the two children from Chile uh, me, like in the bigger picture of what you're doing as a uh, a real leader of this field, what do we represent for the world? Like if when I die, when these kids die, what will be left behind? And I'm thinking about Misha, my brother, who has a, uh, a genetic mutation of his DNA that didn't have him get the disease. And that was the inspiration for our genetic work. And I got the disease. What do we, yeah. how do we reframe um, these conversations in a way where we're not fighting with each other, but where we're complementing each other's DNA? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the power of, of human genetics and working together. Um, I'll just use COVID as an example. Um, you know, there's a lot of when when when, a, when hundreds and thousands of people get tested and get DNA for um, COVID testing, we have the opportunity to do these incredible studies in the community to understand which people 
by their genetic makeup are more vulnerable to dying from COVID and which are protected. And I think of that as very much um, like you and your brother, Misha. Misha has something that protects him. He has the same genetics that you have at the SMN locus. He has the SMA gene. He has the same backup copy number, but he has something in his genetics uh, that protected him and didn't protect you. That's an incredibly powerful tool for us to find as scientists to mine that data, to, to find that modifier that your brother has. And that's why he's so important to the work that we're doing. Um, there's an, a nice example of, um, for a cholesterol medication, uh, or, or for a cholesterol, um, um, a gene that uh, affects the regulation of cholesterol um, that led to a new drug that was based on a single family that had hot, that had high cholesterol, but were protected from heart disease. So I, I, I think that there are a number of examples out there in, in medicine and in science, but it truly requires a community to get these answers to help each other. In other words, no one person is enough to contribute the information we need. We mm -hmm. all are a piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. So to me, we're all connected. We're all a piece of the puzzle. What we do affects others. And, and you know, that, that plays, that's playing out right now in the United States with masks, the, the no maskers and the people who are wearing masks. I mean, mm -hmm. it's at every level of our society. We must be connected as human beings and we must be connected to help each other, whatever the rare disease we have is, whatever the common disease we have is. Uh, and, and that's what I'll say. Okay. Great discussion, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. Before we go, mm -hmm. this is uh, a book I produced with the UN. Just look at his face. Look at his face and then look at his body. This man won five Olympic medals. And the way he stops, he's a swimmer, is he hits his head on the side of the pool. Mm. <laughs> I do too, by the way, because I can barely figure out where I'm swimming sometimes. But I just want, I want, Cray, for you to finish us off tonight. Just touch on the genetics of hope from your perspective, why that title resonates with you and also tell everyone about our curriculum a little bit about what we're doing to educate people on our website and say something about cytokinetics because they have supported us from the beginning and they are part of the curriculum that's right well I'm, yeah i would say like to come together and talk about this in community, in this community, the, the people on this webinar and, and us tonight was just a lot of fun and energizing. And I think like that is the work that we want to do now that this first part, this first fit, this first version, this first film um, and story that we made, we want to expand on it and tell the story in other ways. And so part of that is, is the film and part of that is these conversations and a curriculum that can teach how, how the body works, like 
in a, in a way that, you know, how do our muscles work? And this is both for, for, for students like that are, that are in high school and they, they want to know how our nerves are triggering the muscles and how do you run? And when you're walking, how do your muscles work there? It's, it's a window, in, you know, again, using real life stories. Um, and when the, you know, when a muscle doesn't work, it also reveals how a muscle does work. And, um, and yeah, huge shout out to cytokinetics and MGH and Ohio state university, cold spring Harbor, all of our partners that, that made this possible, both as story contributors, like you, Dr. Svoboda for letting us come film so many times. Thank you. <laughs> um, and that's how we see our collaborators, not as just interviewees, but as story contributors, because they, that's what they do. They have their insights and experiences and let us into their world for a bit. So we've collected so much footage and now we want to share it um, past the film, past the walls of the film um, for education and also to share with other rare disease communities to show that um, it's rare, but you're not alone and we can learn from each other. We can build more conferences like Cure SMA and especially in this time where we are separated so much because of the pandemic, like how can we come together um, through the, you know, through the, the process of sharing the story. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of fun and I look forward to doing more of these, um, with, with you, Kathy and, and with, yeah, with, with others. Can I just say our vision for these, uh, events is exactly what we did tonight. I mean, think about you, you all are in, are in medical school and Catherine is your teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so much. That's it. So do your homework. You have to watch the film again now, and you have to study your own DNA. You have to do a 23andMe test. Come back to the next event and say, this is my DNA. How do I interpret that? That's number one. Genetics of Hope for me is about not just our will to live, but the fact that our DNA expresses itself every day is a fact. And when we die, we die. So live as long as you can live, as far as I'm concerned. And then number three, I want to acknowledge um, uh, my dear friend, Jonathan Crowley, uh, because when I got really sick, he said, cross, crawl, swim, and realign your nervous system. And I did it, and I still do it every day. And Catherine, what I learned so much from you is that the nervous system is not just sitting there waiting for us to trigger it. We are the nervous system triggering our own existence. Yep, right? it's true. So it's not, we have to change our view of science to be this passive view of science to being our own creation, our co-creation of life. And I think um, just in closing, the cytokinetics um, support, uh, that's, that's yet another approach. There are so many approaches to these diseases. Right. The particular approach that cytokinetics is taking is different in that it's not necessarily specific to SMA, 
but it could be uh, it could be relevant to a lot of different musculoskeletal right. diseases right. It, because it's working on the sarcomere, on the structure of the muscle itself. And, and I think, um, you know, so that I just wanted to say we didn't we didn't talk a lot about that, but I but there are multiple approaches that that we are taking to SMA that come from other fields mm-hmm. and where there are going to be things that we're doing in SMA that apply to other fields. And there are going to be things from other fields that we're going to bring back to SMA. And that's true for every disease out there. And it's true for COVID. Look, the new FDA approved drug is an antiviral developed for a different virus. You know, I, I think that's, that happens. Wow. And, we, and we repurpose drugs all the time for rare diseases by trying to understand what a drug is doing in the context of a living organism in the human body, starting in a worm or a fly or a mouse, and then we figure out what it's doing in humans. And then we try to manipulate it. That's the nature of medicine, uh, of pharmaceutical uh, intervention. And that's, that's, uh, that's something that we're doing. We're affecting our body every way, uh, not just by medicines we take, but by the way we eat, by the way we move, by the way we uh, wake up and, and think about our life in the morning, how positive we are, et cetera. So I think that that's the lessons that I, I've learned from my recent health thing uh, are to go back to basics and, and um, you know, listen to what I'm preaching all the time and apply it to my own life, right? Okay. <laughs> well said. All right, everybody. You... Uh, You've uh, all contributed to a wonderful discussion. Thank you very much for your time and your expertise, Kathy Savarda and Krajnovic and Artemis Joukowsky. And thank you. Thank you, Mary.